You're listening to Once, episode 214, Dreamcatcher. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Jeremy Laughlin. I'm Aaron. And we're so happy to have you joining us. We've dug deeper into this episode, The Dreamcatcher, and we're ready to discuss this with you. So let's just jump right into it, starting with the past. Camelot, many years ago, this may be the oldest scene we've ever seen before. You think so? Yeah, that's. I was confused about that. <laughs> I'm even wondering, is this maybe the first dark one? That would make sense, since Merlin was obviously directly involved in making the darkness one with a one, and therefore a dark one, and probably being the show that we're watching accidentally, or purposely, probably accidentally somehow, ended up sacrificing his true love in order to do it. Jenny had an interesting <laughs> suggestion here that I think makes total sense. Jenny being my wife, by the way, when you realize that you couldn't see the face of the dark one and everything about the dark one was covered up. Jenny's theory was that the dark one is actually a woman. And in fact, this dark one is the woman whom Merlin loved. Because when he said that the dark one destroyed the only woman he loved, it reminds me a little bit of Star Wars, where Obi-Wan Kenobi does say, Darth Vader killed your father. Spoiler, Darth Vader <laughs> was Anakin. Ah, uh, yes. I can see why you would be reminded of that. <laughs> I would agree totally that it is a woman, because otherwise I feel like it's just redundant to not show her face. And the goldness of the face, like how gold and how solid it looks, kind of to me would make sense that that is like a full dark one that has completely been like given over or taken over. Like we know that gold was getting taken over, but there was still light left in his heart, right? So it's kind of like this is somebody who's gone through the full transformation of becoming the dark one. And that's why it's like the solid gold face and also to hide that it is a woman thinking that maybe we wouldn't notice that and that could be a big reveal later on. I don't know if we weren't supposed to notice per se. I think it wasn't pronounced, but she was so much shorter than him. And I'm, I'm just saying she. And the way she was moving was the creepiest dark one thing we've ever seen, I think. But that w it was strange, too, because it was almost like she was menacing him. Clearly, he was in control because mm -hmm. he had the dagger, but she just zip, 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 zip everywhere. And then he commands her to stop, but he also couldn't bring himself to kill her. Yes. And he had the dagger, so it's not like she stopped him. He was, I mean, the person with the dagger is the only one who can kill the Dark One. Although, sidebar, Merlin, you're the super powerful wizard. Do you really think it's a good idea to make yourself the Dark One? Unless because he's the one who created the Dark One. He can kill the Dark One without becoming the Dark One. Maybe. Was this part of the battle when he was trying to destroy the darkness? Oh, but that seemed to be resolved according to The Apprentice, by tethering it to a human soul. Right. So maybe that human soul was accidentally the woman he loved. Right. Or maybe 
it was something else. Like maybe he had to sacrifice the woman he loved or he thought uh, he would be able to do that in a way that he wouldn't actually lose her to the darkness. The heart of the thing he loved most, perhaps. But then why would he be all like, boo-hoo, you took the woman I love? Because like he would have known that that was going to happen. He's addressing the darkness. Sort of. Well, yeah. So (laughs) I don't think that part... Yeah, I don't think that part was necessarily intentional. We could actually see both sides of the dagger, and there was no name on it. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Oh, Hmm. that is interesting. Screenshots or it didn't happen. Maybe because that is the original dark one. Yeah. One thing that I question, though, with this idea of maybe it's the woman that he loved, is what's the payoff for that? Is there any kind of payoff? Like, the dark one... That dark one is dead now, or we assume is dead now because the dark one was probably passed on to someone mm-hmm. else and the dark one has to die for that to happen. Unless Maybe it's his mother. <laughs> unless the apprentice is involved. So <laughs> there's no payoff in seeing his woman return unless it's something like by destroying the darkness once and for all, it does bring back the woman that he loved. Mm. Or it could be something else, like maybe the point of seeing that dark one is to get to see the parallel of the woman he loved turning into the dark one, Mm -hmm. the same kind of parallel that we would see with Emma turning into the dark one. Right. And that's what I would think, unless it's his mother, and we have yet another mother destroying love (laughs) for their child, but I doubt it. Yeah, that was a big theme of this episode, the whole notion of kind of doing the wrong thing for the right reasons and justifying that because it's for the greater good. So, I mean, we saw Cora doing that and Regina was very adamant that Cora truly believed she was doing what was best for Regina. We saw Emma do that. And like, maybe we also saw Merlin do that. Maybe he knew that the only way was to sacrifice the woman that he loves, and maybe he did do the wrong thing for the right reason. The wrong thing being destroying her for the reason of controlling the darkness. The two theories that were emailed in, one from Cyros, uh, Cyros, something like that, and Rose Mason. Cyros uh, thought the first dark one is Morgana, and then Rose Mason thought the first dark one is Nimu. Bless you. And I think either of those could be true. Most likely, though, probably Nimu, who was, uh, well, here's the message from Rose Mason. Mm -hmm. She said, I believe that the dark one who turned Merlin into the tree was, in fact, Nimu or Vivian, who was the one he was in love with. This totally explains why he would just stand there as she turned him into a tree. Very interesting. Perhaps she was the first dark one who he controlled by the dagger. In Arthurian legend, she is also the ruler of Avalon and Lady of the Lake, who gave Excalibur to Arthur, which would give her a direct connection to Excalibur. I wonder if Merlin tethered the darkness to her using the dagger broken from Excalibur. Maybe something went wrong when he was teaching her magic. Hmm. I like that theory. That's awesome. I so need to brush up on my Arthurian legend. I've gotten the book as far as being on hold for me at the library. I bought The Sword in the Stone on Blu-ray and just haven't watched it yet. I think it's probably like an hour long. I should just watch it. <laughs> Could watch with Emma if you can time travel. True. 
with a dream catcher, which I love that. I love that they're doing bringing the dream catchers back in. That's a very personal thing for Emma. It's been a trend throughout the show uh, with her, specifically when it comes to love. But mm-hmm. yeah, I liked all the throwbacks to kind of that Tallahassee moment uh, and the yeah. meal fire. I was glad that they didn't belabor this point of, do we know whether Snow and Charming are still under the spell? Because there was Emma right there to freeze them and say, no, they're under this spell. Now everybody right. knows. Right, right, right. I think it was getting pretty obvious. Snow's surly attitude was stepped <laughs> up a notch against Regina. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think if Emma hadn't have swooped in, it would have been pretty evident to Regina that something was amiss. But that was pretty good. It is nice that they didn't belabor the point. Oh, yeah. Have you lost the powers of comprehension? In Merlin's Tower, when they start talking about the Dreamcatcher and the possibility of using it, we were reminded of something we haven't seen since episode 10 of season two, the cricket game. That's when we first saw Gold teach Emma how to use a Dreamcatcher. And it was to use on Pongo in order to see Pongo's memory of seeing (laughs) Archie fake killed by fake Regina, which was really Cora. Gosh, I had totally forgotten that. So much of what they said in this episode, in this scene specifically about the Dreamcatcher, was very much tied to what they said back in the cricket game. Like even referencing some of the same things. That's awesome. This episode was written by Kitsis and Horowitz themselves, uh, which is why we kind of have that, man, somebody really knows their once upon a time history feel. If only we could have this all the time. <laughs> Maybe we will for the rest of the season. You think Kitsis and Horowitz are going to write every episode for the rest of the season? I could dream, catch, <laughs> but no, I don't. I caught what you were saying. <laughs> See, I would love Kitsis, Horowitz, and Espenson to write, Espenson, to write an episode together. <laughs> all, like all three of them. Because I feel like they would be the perfect combination the things that I dislike about Kitsis and Horowitz's episodes, Jane Espenson does amazingly and then vice versa. Yeah, they would probably be a good balance. <laughs> Maybe, the, Maybe series the series finale. finale. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> Jinx again. Because we always love most of the dialogue in the Espenson episodes, but then sometimes they start to feel a little bit, uh, I'm not even sure what the right word would be, sort of sort of modern day sitting in my living room. We got to meet Violet's father, Sir Morgan. You make that sound like a privilege. Well, I wonder (laughs) if it is because Morgan and Morgan Le Fay or Morgana, it it makes me really think that Violet's father is Morgan Le Fay. Yes, he's a guy. (laughs) Morgana was a girl. Jack was a girl. Exactly. (laughs) They have switched gender roles with characters and they've changed people in ways that we didn't expect. So I wouldn't be surprised if the horrible Morgan Le Fay is actually a guy. But then again, his role in this episode seemed so minor that in a way it feels like he couldn't be one of these significant characters. He seems pretty simple. However, I have to remind myself of Tamara. Because in when we first met Tamara... What's happening in Tamara? We, oh, Tamara. <laughs> yeah, we thought that she, or I thought she was a completely insignificant character. You did? 
Yeah. When oh. we first met her, it was just like, oh, oh, fiance. Oh, I see. And then it turns out she's an evil minion of yeah. Neil's grandfather, Peter Pan. Season two had so much going for it. I wonder if we'll ever see the end of season two. Oh, wait. Sealed. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> is, Henry, is Henry supposed to only be 13? That's what he said. Unless he lied to the guy's I face. I feel like that's just wrong. Well, what, for him to be going out on a date this young? Or to be playing no, with a sword? No, that he's only 13. <laughs> well, he was 11 I just f- when Once Upon a Time started. Or, no, 10. 10. Yeah. He was 10, but he was in third grade, which you're in when you're eight. So it doesn't really, I mean, already there's time timeline issues with that. Well, but at least he was in Storybook yeah. where time was frozen. And the way that Storybook time has moved along has not been completely parallel with like real time. So we have seen them jump about the same amount of time over hiatus. We've seen them jump even more time. So having him 13 now, I'm kind of okay with. Yeah, he's just so tall. And they're writing 15-year-old stuff. Yeah, he's almost 15, I think, in real life. But I just remember, I, um, what's the convention in California where they do the big panel, Paley Fest or something? Comic-Con or Paley Fest, D23. Paley Fest? Yeah, in, in season one, there was a question about Lost and the little boy character who was growing too much, and so they like wrote him off the show because he was growing and then Kitsis and Horowitz said, no, like every season is a year. And so we're not going to have to like make Jared Gilmore get lost on a boat or whatever happened, whatever the comment was. Hmm. So it just seems like they're kind of stuck in that same position again, where he's growing much faster than his character is. Yeah. And they kind of caught him up, but it seems like they didn't catch him up enough. Yeah, many of the story arcs have been just a matter of days, and then they just go straight from one to the next without any kind of, and this much time of peace passed in Storybrooke before the next disaster descended upon our heroes and villains. <laughs> That's true. And some props here to Keb, who manages our timeline over at oncepodcast.com slash timeline. If you want to check that out and see how things might possibly align over there, you'll get a better idea of how this all kind of fits together. So now we know Henry actually calls his moms moms while he's out there sword practicing, <laughs> learning to become a hero. Yeah. Uh, so their speech, <laughs> I don't disagree, but why does Henry's learning to wield a sword in a dangerous land mean that he can't be himself and can't be a writer? Yeah, I remember scenes where he was excited to learn to fight with Charming. Remember? Like he made him like the wooden sword and they were practicing all the time. And he was learning how to ride a horse. Like I feel like that this is kind of coming out of left field, this whole notion that he suddenly isn't a hero. He used to want to do it. And I mean, if they were to stay there, uh, Sir Morgan's got a point. Maybe Henry needs to be able to defend anyone who's around him, not just Violet. Heck, teach Violet to fight, too. I don't, th- I don't see why that means you can't be yourself. Yeah, it's the whole notion of that he has to protect her, which is kind of counterintuitive to this entire show. But also just it's the whole notion that you have to be like a big, strong fighter to be a hero, which is also counterintuitive to this show because he True. 
saved everybody last season with his intelligence, not his, you know, brute strength. And that's probably what they were getting at. I just found it a little bit of a, I don't know, a pause to to teach the children something. Well, I think that the the sword playing and that kind of stuff when Henry was younger was just the fun. And now that he's a writer, he's kind of taking it more seriously to recognize I am the next author and I love this. It's like when you find that thing you really want to do. As a kid, maybe you want to be a fireman, a police officer, a doctor, a detective, an astronaut, something like that. When you get older, you put aside, some people put aside those dreams and then find a new dream or find something else that they're even more passionate about pursuing. And maybe that's it for Henry. And he feels like, do I have to put aside this new passion of mine? What really resonates well with my personality? And do I need to be a knight? Why can't I be the author? That's what I like now. Sure. Sure. I just had a thought. Whoa. Do you guys think Henry was writing while they were in Camelot? See, I was just about to say, is it so Henry's the author. Is he isn't he not doing his job? He broke the freaking pen. Why did he do that? He's supposed to be recording but, everything that happens, at least in the Enchanted Forest. You can record it without that magic pen, but what I'm thinking is that they could find out what happened if they found the book that Henry wrote it in. <laughs> I don't think he's doing it. When we saw Isaac as the author, he was just walking around and that was kind of like his full-time job was just sort of moving the pen over the paper and everything was appearing on the page. But then so why does Henry still identify as a writer if he's not taking that job? Because it's an awkward sort of a position and logistically speaking, it doesn't work super well. Or he just hasn't started. Or he's writing everything and we're going to find the book. Maybe, but we haven't seen him do it. When Emma made Regina cry, do you think that that was... <laughs> and when Emma made Regina cry, you make it sound like she pulled her hair or said a mean thing. Do you think that was the inspiration or the idea for Emma's uh, breaking Henry's heart? Or do you think she'd already broken or put things in motion to break Henry's heart at that point? Like that scene with Violet, do you think that happened before or after this? She and Regina were together presumably that whole entire time maybe not but actually no i'd say actually it makes more sense for them to have done that and then for emma to have realized you've moved on we're probably going to need something else let me go get this other thing going just in case but uh either way i don't think emma sees it as the same i don't know if i would say it was inspiration but because she genuinely said how could a mother do that And I still, as disturbing as it was, I still don't think what she did was anywhere near (laughs) what happened with Cora and Regina. Right. Yeah, it's not comparable. I dare say that Violet has her heart back and in Storybrooke, everything's just fine. Or does she have her heart back? Well, there's no reason for her to not. Yeah. And she seems to be warming up to Henry just fine. Unless Emma needs Violet to break Henry's heart in Storybrooke, too. (laughs) Maybe. Once wasn't enough. (laughs) Emma seemed heartbroken that she was taking those steps to break Henry's heart. 
So I feel like it it was one of those things that I talked about earlier, like it was necessity, or at least she felt it was necessity. And that's how she justified it to herself. And it's really not comparable to what Cora did at all. It's basically, I just need you to I just need you to trick my son for a second so that I can get him to cry and then everything will be okay. And you can go back to like loving him and right. There's no reason to think that it had to continue after that, that Emma didn't give the heart back to Violet and Violet's like, oh, oops, Henry, I'm just kidding. I want to date court you. And um, then everything goes back to normal. Like it just, it seems like they're making a mountain out of a mohill to make the story work. But to me, it's just not the same at all. And Emma's going to be turned into this huge, like, you know, villain because of this. Whereas Regina is, you know, has rectified everything she did after slaughtering thousands of people. It's just, I mean, it's gray. It's a gray area, but I wouldn't say it's quite as dark gray as that. Jacqueline wanted to point out that they've really shown how far Emma and Regina have come in their relationship since season one. Because remember, in season one, Emma and Regina were total enemies, even a little bit in season two. But yeah. now the, Regina's being very open, sharing this moment, although she didn't know she was sharing it. But then she did comment on it and she continued discussing it. And yet here's Emma taking lessons basically from Cora. So Henry goes on this little date with Violet at Granny's, a place where all dates happen, even in Camelot. <laughs> Well, most dates, that is. Maybe Granny should have thought about opening a Camelot location once the original is back in Storybrooke. What a good idea. <laughs> Might be a hard commute. <laughs> There's something really disturbing here. I think I know where you're going with this. I did some research on the two movies oh, that that's Henry not had I you on his phone. <laughs> uh, Commando and the other movie was Harold and Maude. Um, Commando is, well, there are a few movies um, called Commando, but probably the most notable is an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that was released in 1985. And he goes into South America and um, kills a bunch of people that kidnapped his daughter and other stuff like that happens. So not so much there that I think necessarily parallels this, unless maybe Violet was a kidnapped daughter. Harold and Maude, however, mm-hmm. odd movie from 1971. Maude is a young guy in his late teens that is essentially obsessed with death. He loves going to funerals. He loves all of this dead kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But he meets this 79-year-old woman called Maude, and she starts to teach him really about life and how... Uh, how important life is. And he learns to live and learns to appreciate life more than death. And he actually like proposes to Maud. I thought you said Maud was the dude. No. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say that's a strange name for a guy. And so this, it's this old woman. He essentially falls in love with her. Uh, 18 year old falling in love with a 79 year old who turns 80 and then dies. <laughs> it made me wonder Again, if maybe there's something here that Violet is actually Morgana disguised as a little girl. But then again, if it was Morgana, 
Emma probably wouldn't have been able to take her heart. And that heart wouldn't have been so pristine and red. Or it could be something like they reversed the clock. And Emma would have just looked at it and been like, you can have this. Get away from my son. (laughs) I think that Violet, I would, I, maybe I don't think this, but I would be happy if Violet's storyline was done now. Like, this has now fulfilled its purpose. Right. She can go to Forgotten Character Island <laughs> and we can all live happily ever after. Not I would be okay with that. But his heart's already broken. So he's fine. He's going to be fine. He's 13. He's resilient. Yeah. He's resilient. Yes. And possibly too young for candlelit dates at Granny's. But it was cute. With it was. Carnival in a can. <laughs> <laughs> nice placement there for Pepsi. And maybe that'll be Pepsi's new slogan. It's like a carnival in a can. Enjoy Pepsi today. (laughs) So here's what I thought you were going to say when you said something was disturbing. Did Emma make a suggestion via Stolen Heart? Or was she puppeting Violet the whole time? Mm. It sounded... The second time through, when I knew what I was listening for, it did sound like a lot of language that Emma would use. When Violet was air quote breaking up with Henry, they just never. I don't. I don't remember it. the specific words, but oh, like she was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like that's not something a thirteen-year-old girl would say to a boy who's courting her. Like that's something a mom would say about her son <laughs> courting a thirteen-year-old girl. <laughs> it would make the carnival in a can comment make a whole lot more sense because Emma knows what a can <laughs> is, but I don't think Violet does, and what a carnival is. <laughs> Oh, they have carnivals in the Enchanted Forest and Camelot. Believe you me. Think back to season two when Cora had Aurora's heart. And she was able to control Aurora, but that didn't mean that she was always actively controlling Aurora. But that Aurora kind of did Cora's bidding. But there were those times that she used the heart basically as a walkie-talkie to right. directly speak exact words through Cora. So that kind of parallels right now with Emma having Merida's heart in present day. It's not like Emma's walkie-talkieing with the heart. She just gave her a task to do. Like you can tell that Merida is still Merida right. because of the things that she's saying. But she's obeying because Emma has her heart and told her what to do, which I'm sure we will talk more about this when we get to that scene. It's almost like the Dark One dagger is to the Dark One what everyone else's hearts are to them. Right, exactly. So Emma and Regina start to brew this little potion and it didn't work. It reminded me a lot of back in season one, episode two of season one, when <laughs> Regina was there with yeah. the spell and everything and it puffs up and then just <laughs> didn't work. Right before we first saw her turn something into stone. (laughs) So instead of it being the heart of the thing you love most, it's they need a tear from your first broken heart and a fresh tear from a broken heart. How do they always know how this stuff's supposed to work? To me, they were making a potion. It looked pretty potent. Why didn't they just throw it on the tree? It did something. Well, because it needed to be Emma. Who did something, not simply throw it on they the tree. They knew it was going to billow out of the cup. Probably. Or that it would give her some kind of <laughs> magic to wield. It was cool. It was cool looking black and white yeah. swirly magic that she 
wielded. It was confusing, but it was cool. Just before she used that magic, when Henry came up and he was all crying and broken heart and everything. There. Good thing he didn't go off in the woods to get that out of his system first. <laughs> when Emma took his tear, or Regina took his tear, but mm-hmm. Emma said something that was like, you can save me, kid. Do you think maybe that's a foretelling of Storybrooke? I think it was, your tear's about to get Merlin out of this tree, and that's the whole point of everything we've been doing, because we think he can take the darkness out of her. So, yeah, I think that's all she meant. It could be a parallel foreshadowing. Emma did seem to really enjoy wielding this light and dark magic simultaneously. She got kind of a rush. Yeah. It's creepy. It's probably a pretty powerful uh, emotion to have that power. Do you guys think that Emma recognized Merlin from the from movie From one theater? of her many traumatic childhood experiences? Probably. <laughs> because she did kind of look like her face was basically saying, you... So I think that, yes, she does remember him, and she's stunned that, I saw Merlin way back then when I was a kid. I wonder when she's going to realize. Even though he was a tree. Well, I think that he's able to cast visions of himself. After all, how did Arthur know all of this stuff? And he said that Merlin uh, came to him, or Merlin spoke to him. That's true. Okay. I'll accept that for now. They need to hurry up and explain... The animosity. Like, I mean, I guess I understand why he would call Arthur a disappointment now, having seen what he did. But they need to, like, have it out. They need to settle this. I don't know. I want to hear. I want to (laughs) hear. I want to hear them talk about it instead of all this (laughs) half-thoughtedness. And we're just left to figure out why Arthur now hates Merlin. Why didn't Merlin say something else? Like... No, dude, you don't need to do what you just did. You're like, you're fine with the sword the way it is. Like, I don't know. Give him more if you can talk to him. I just want to know more of the story. Or maybe it's like I theorized before. Maybe it was that Merlin could only appear to children. And by the time that Arthur started going down the wrong path and becoming the the ruler of the kingdom, he was no longer a child and thus no longer able to uh, see Merlin at all. But Merlin did free Snow and Charming from their little spell that Arthur had on them. So it's nice to know that they aren't under that spell in Storybrooke. That didn't carry over, but Guinevere is still under that same spell. Oh, yeah. Even watching this a second time, I had to really think about the Charming's reaction to Merlin. Because this scene opens and he's unspelling them. And then they they have this reaction like they just woke up and they're like, you're Merlin? And I'm going, you mean they don't remember anything from the time the sand was thrown? Does that mean Guinevere is going to not remember anything from all these years? But then I remembered Emma froze them. So if they, if you were like me and had any confusion, the oh, reason okay. they're acting like they just woke up is because they did. They hadn't actually seen Merlin until that moment because... They were frozen. What they didn't show is how they used, I guess, like, like wheel lifts to like cart the Charmings into the room and place them there frozen. And then Merlin just undid the sand and the freezing. Or they could have just poofed them over. Oh, or that. Yeah, they have magic. Mm. Remember, they can poof people to places. That's probably a better explanation. Yes. 
then there was the expecting someone older line. Yes, we were. Your apprentice was ancient. He just passes it off as, let's just say being a tree is good for the skin. And I say, let's just say we try not to have very many older and attractive people on this show. And we really just like everyone to be around the same age and preferably related. Well, I do wonder if maybe <laughs> the apprentice became the apprentice. Let's call him Yen Sid because I think that's the appropriate name for him. I wonder if maybe Yen Sid became an apprentice because Merlin appeared to Yen Sid in a dream and communicated but remember there was the scene with the author when we're back in season four talking about the author and the mistake that they made and merlin was appearing to the apprentice inside of that vault where the little hat was stored and merlin was just this cloud in the room yes he was much more imposing than he is now maybe that's how he spoke to the apprentice this whole time, and he never met the apprentice face-to-face. Maybe. They also had not cast him yet, so being just a big thing of magic is very helpful in those cases. Or appearing as a statue of yourself. Something like that. <laughs> and Emma wastes no time wanting to jump right in and ask, can you remove the darkness? But she didn't answer Merlin's question. Darkness like this takes a hold of a person, finds its way deep inside where nobody else can see. So if I'm to free you from its grasp, I must know one thing. Emma, is your heart truly ready to be free? Because it is as much up to you as me. So is it ready to be free? I'm thinking, no, it wasn't. (laughs) I'm guessing that's what current present day fairy tale or present day storybook implies, yes. I'm I'm really liking all of these kind of monologues about darkness this season. There's been a couple. I really like them. I think that we might be surprised what's going on in present day Storybrooke. But here in the past, probably in the next episode, we'll find out what her answer was. But I have to wonder if it's anything other than yes, why? What's her explanation? Or maybe her answer is yes, but that's not what she's really thinking. What she's thinking is, no, I kind of like having all of this magical power. And so maybe when Merlin tries to remove the darkness, something breaks in the process. And that's how we end up with where we are in Storybrooke. With no Merlin? No Merlin. Emma seems to be fully dark one. And memories are wiped. Mm, I still wouldn't say Emma is fully dark one. We'll see, I guess. But a question that I want to ask you is, are you willing to be a hero? You could be a hero for the podcast by letting go of maybe only a couple dollars per month, maybe more, maybe less. It's up to you. But we are very grateful for our heroes for supporting this episode of the podcast. And specifically for this episode, I would like to thank David Newland, Lisa Slack, Amy Cavalier, and our 29 backers on Patreon. We could not do this podcast without you. So thank you very much. If you would like to be a hero for the podcast as well, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. You can sign up for an automatic monthly donation of as little as a dollar or more than that. And there are different levels that you can support the podcast and special perks that come along with those. Or 
you can uh, consider doing your shopping on Amazon.com. Christmas is coming up, and this is a great time to do some great shopping on Amazon.com. You get to save money by shopping on Amazon.com. But if you click on our link first over at oncepodcast.com slash hero, then we get a portion of what you spend on Amazon.com, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So your two options there are available at oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. Thanks to David, Lisa, Amy, and our 29 backers on Patreon. Thank you. You're a hero to us. You can save us, kid. Thank you for your support. Another cool thing you could do is submit your photo of you in a Once Upon a Time themed costume in our 2015 Once Upon a Time costume contest over at oncepodcast.com slash contest. This is your opportunity to win some really cool, fun stuff for Once Upon a Time. And this is open to anyone except states that might prohibit this or countries or something like that. But I don't know which ones they are. So you need to know your own rules and make sure that you're following your own country's rules if you're allowed to enter this kind of thing. But there are going to be some great prizes, first, second and third place prizes. We want to see your best Once Upon a Time themed costume. You could pick any character from Once Upon a Time. It could be Regina. It could be Cruella. It could be... Uh, Zelena, it could be Pongo, it could be uh, Merlin, Rumpelstiltskin, anyone. It's up to you, but it must be a character from Once Upon a Time. And there's a spot on the contest submission form where you will be able to tell us who that character is, just in case we can't tell. But Mm -hmm. if you do a really good job, we should be able to tell anyway. So that's at oncepodcast.com slash contest. And may the odds be ever in your favor. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I'm going to be Ruby, but as the wolf with some someone on me. <laughs> someone on my chin. <laughs> Not by the person of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> Moving on to present day Storybrooke, we're at the sheriff's office, with, which is now Squire Free, apparently. <laughs> Again! as everyone's pointing out why aren't they checking the tapes yes it's dumb maybe later they had operation b and e to do tonight yeah the block party henry is texting emojis just smile after smile after smile after smile over to violet where did she get a phone who's their carrier in storybrooke it's confusing well and i was even wondering about the stables so like where she got the stable because they were all just wandering in the woods, I thought, the people from Camelot. Maybe there's a stable in the woods that they're allowed to use for some of their horses. After all, Arthur did come into Storybrooke riding a horse. So where is he going to store his horse? <laughs> True. And then there's Belle, still running around with that jar and the rose. Oh, my. That was... Her entrance <laughs> was so awkward. I'm sorry. Sometimes when she runs into a scene, she looks like she's having a hard time stopping on her heels. And she's about to fall over. At least that's the picture in my head. Maybe it's a caricature, especially while she's running around with the football, as we will now refer to the rose. (laughs) When Emma went to uh, feed Rumpel and give him off, pass him off to Merida, it seemed like Rumpel was just afraid of everything. He's really being a coward here. I think Emma should really be listening to him more often because he has some good advice to give. Hey, I was a dark one before. Hey, listen to my advice, please. 
he made really valid points and I agree he, she should be listening. But I, I also believe that the darkness inside of her might not be letting her listen or she is really listening and just can't lead on that she is. Yeah, because we don't know yet what is really going on here. It could be something else. I think it's really not as obvious as it seems. What is happening is not what we think is happening, but it's something or not what it seems. Nothing is as it seems. That's something Lancelot said about Camelot. I think we should assume that about everything that's happening in Storybrooke as well. I did not like that suddenly Merida is able to fight against Emma taking her heart or fight against Emma while Emma has her heart. That's something we've never seen before. Uh, even with Hook last season, it just it seemed inconsistent. I thought of Jeremy. I figured he would have something to say about that. So Emma's got all of these dream catchers, but there's this one particular one that she sheds a tear over. Why? Do you think that was the same one that they used with Violet? It looked, actually, it looks the same as what Emma used to help Regina see the vision of Cora killing Daniel. And it also looks the same as the one that Regina used to be able to see Violet. So maybe it's that same one, but why would she uh, shed a tear over it? Is it recognizing what she's doing and how hurtful she's being in order to accomplish whatever secret plan this is? Or is it maybe a memory that is particularly special to her that she wishes she could enjoy with someone? I don't think that it's Violet's memories. I don't think that that's what it is. I think that, like I said, that issue was kind of made a mountain out of a mohill and Henry seemed fine once he realized that Emma could use his tear. So unless more happened that we don't know about yet, I think that it was probably something a little bit more powerful than that. Something that we haven't even seen yet. Yeah, perhaps. But due to Violet's losing her horse, unless that was Emma, which I I (laughs) appreciate that Regina kind of challenged her on that. And Emma didn't refute that. So I'm going to assume that, yes, Emma did um, spook the horse or something and had this plan of how she could work together with Henry. I thought that when Henry went to get Emma's help, it it tied nicely back to season one. In fact, they used the music here when Henry was reminding Emma of Operation Cobra, the same music as back in season one when Henry was inventing Operation Cobra and was getting Emma on board with him to come to Storybrooke and a nice, fun kind of building... Uh, music there that they used this also had other feels to it with the the only you song being mentioned and that's apparently the same song that neil used on emma but it seemed like there was something a little bit more because when henry mentioned it she seemed very distracted not simply remembering neil but as if there was something even more to the song See, I felt I felt like Emma was distracted every time she was talking to Henry about love. So I was just wondering if she was kind of like nostalgic, not nostalgic, but, you know, just being like motherly, like, oh, my kid's falling in love, um, sentimental. But um, I felt like that even in this scene, because I don't know, the dialogue back and forth with them was so good about the song. I really loved that. Um, but maybe the song... 
I mean, it is a song that's kind of, we've seen it in the past and now we've seen it in the present. And there was feedback a couple of weeks ago about the significance of some of the lyrics. So maybe the song, maybe there is more to it. And yeah, there could be something connecting the worlds through that song. That would be strange, but if they want to write that, they should go for it. <laughs> Violet did hear the song in Storybrooke and said something seemed familiar about it, or that she felt like she'd heard it before. Meanwhile, our Scottish lady is trying to make a hero out of Rumple, and they, <laughs> they're around this big tree, and we haven't seen Merlin, and it did make me wonder for a, a moment, because there is, it's this big, ominous tree, but it's not twisted like the Merlin tree was in Camelot. This big tree is, well, basically a, a big tree. It doesn't look the same, but it did make me wonder, what if Merlin is in a tree again in Storybrooke? Because he's noticeably absent from Storybrooke, except for his home, which we got to see in the last season. That's where Rumple and Belle had their honeymoon. That was the sorcerer's mansion, but he's nowhere to be found. And we got several other brave references as well, like the bear, the king, the three brothers, all of that from Merida. And Rumple's statement, I, I could never be brave. Do we think that teaching him to fight is a good way of making him a hero? To me, that doesn't really make sense. Well, she said that he was going to face the dark one. She said he was going to face Emma. That's Merida's plan. So is Emma manipulating Merida into getting Rumple to try and fight her? And that's going to make him a hero? Because just teaching him to fight, I mean, you can't make someone a hero. That's a good point. I, I think that it's probably Emma inspiring Merida to do this stuff because it, I do think that Emma wants gold to fight against her in order to be the hero and she'll feign some defeat or something like that. And he'll be able to pull the sword or or it might be something else. Like she's about to terrorize everyone and Rumple will then decide in that moment, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to pull this sword and defeat Emma because he has just enough confidence to get to that point. So when he pulls the sword out of the stone, then something happens and prevents them from actually fighting. Right. So it's maybe not that the solution is for him to actually fight Emma, but for him to have the confidence that he could so that he takes whatever action is necessary or inspired by that confidence. I feel like it might be kind of one of those moments where Emma thinks that this plan is going to work because she thinks she can manipulate the situation to make him into a hero, much like Gold has done for the last four seasons, but that it might backfire because that's not how you make a hero. Well, jumping to the last scene from this episode, Regina did say, I know the dark one and everything's a manipulation. Mm-hmm. And Emma did not refute that. And I really think that Emma is manipulating mm-hmm. everything to end up in a particular situation where I think ultimately she is doing, trying to do the right thing, doing the bad, doing the wrong thing, but for the right reasons, that doesn't make it a wrong thing. Bad things will still happen, Emma. Bad things. (laughs) So we think that Emma, or you think that Emma is manipulating the situation or the dark one is manipulating the situation or both. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think the dark one 
It, it might be both. Like the dark one in her is manipulating, but Emma is manipulating against the dark one. Mm-hmm. Could be. That, that's what I hope. So apparently having simply a scarf from your son allows you to break through someone's magical security system. Oh my goodness. So she only put a protection spell on the doorknob so nobody could touch the doorknob with hands that aren't covered by something that belongs to someone who is allowed to touch it. What about protecting the whole door frame from keeping an entire person out like every other time we've seen a protection spell? I mean, she could have just used blood magic. So is it sketchy dark one magic or is it Emma manipulating the situation? <laughs> well, she didn't seem to want them to know about the dream catcher, which she left in a decorative box in the center of the table, which apparently is the only decoration in the entire house, making it very obvious. So I assume she didn't want them inside. Plus, they got all the way into the basement. Mm. Although Hook pointed out that she could have hidden the door as well. So, But I don't see why she'd want them down there. The person she wants to pull it from the stone already knows it's there, so... Hmm. They've said several times in this episode something about Henry being a hero. It makes me wonder, is Henry going to be the one to pull the sword from the stone? They said it twice in this. He referenced pulling the sword from the stone yeah. himself. Yeah. Yeah. He does have the heart of the truest believer. Maybe he can be both. Honestly... I just want, at some point, I just want to believe that he can grow up and at some point have cause to say something like, they say the pen is mightier than the sword, but I can wield both. And then it's like a surprise <laughs> and then he fights someone and defeats them. Like if I were writing for the show, I would probably write an entire story arc just to get around to having him say that line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is how I suspect one or two story arcs have been written but never mind that (laughs) but merida knows where to go to find the story arcs for everybody oh she does (laughs) oh right how did she know about the book you know at this point probably henry has told everyone in town about his storybook (laughs) and so merida was kind of like hey you don't know me but where's that book And then she found out, oh, it's in the office? Cool. I'll go break in there with, you know. My arrow. Yeah, it is a little inconsistent. How did she know? How did she know where to even find the book? Maybe she broke into every room in town. Looked at everything. They just showed us the important part. Maybe there was a deleted scene between her and Emma. Yeah, that's often our fallback. There was a deleted scene. (laughs) Definitely theirs. (laughs) Explained it. Uh, It could also be that the book appeared to her because she needed it. As the book has appeared to other well, people. Well, then it should have appeared it. somewhere that she had a reason to be. Like the sword of Gryffindor? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, it was nice to see the book again anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's all. That's as far as that thinking went. And fun to see Peter Peter Pumpkin Eaters. Place. <laughs> yes, pumpkins <laughs> because October. <laughs> like, how can we get pumpkins into the story? Probably a horse that likes pumpkin. The pumpkin was actually the opening title. And even after I saw the episode once, I was like, why is a pumpkin the opening title? And then (laughs) halfway through, I was like, oh, right. Because there was a pumpkin, like one pumpkin for a second that was kind of irrelevant, but whatever. And it's the episode before Halloween. So maybe they want people to think, hey, this is a Halloween themed episode. Eh, No, 
Sorry. <laughs> um, I thought it was a little bit strange that Emma seemed so disheartened that the horse didn't want to be near her, being the dark one. It kind of made me think of that she might not remember the past. Like, I feel like she has to, but that just happened last episode where, like, uh, Hook was, or maybe two episodes ago, sorry, where Hook was trying to get her to ride on the horse and the horse was having none of it. So I feel like it shouldn't be so surprising. And then Emma was very defensive about it. She said, I didn't do anything. So I don't, I don't know. That was a very weird kind of discourse between the, the episode two weeks ago and this episode. It might be a thing that she's still having trouble accepting that the, the horses even can sense the dark oneness in her. And so are they're afraid of her. And it's, it's her basically saying, I didn't do anything. You shouldn't be afraid of me. Sorry, <laughs> I'm the dark one. Yes, but that shouldn't matter here. Maybe it's her denying her own uh, being of what she is right now. She seems to yeah. want everyone to just accept her as the dark one. She doesn't seem to understand that that's not an acceptable thing. You're the dark one. Yeah. No. But is it an acceptable thing? Like she hasn't done anything to them in Storybrooke. Like she has done nothing other than turning Sneezy into stone, <laughs> but that wasn't harmful. It didn't. It didn't harm him. She has kidnapped Rumple, but they don't. Oh, I guess they know now. But even that, like, he's kind of out, and she. It's for a, a plan of some kind. It's not like she's murdering full villages of people or anything. I know I've brought that example up a couple of times, but well, she's I, not acting very dark one like. No, but let's. I'll just say that if their point in the story is that the ultimate concentration of evil in all existence isn't that bad and can be accepted by people and loved, no, that's not a good moral. <laughs> that's just not a story I want to see. I don't but think it about... is the ultimate point of the story. They obviously need to defeat the darkness, but at least I hope. <laughs> I mean, one would think. But my question to that would just be, can darkness ever truly be defeated? I think everybody has darkness in them. And I think that when it's mostly light, then that's when we make those good choices. But I think everybody has the capacity to make not good choices. And everybody has the capacity to do things that they either regret or don't regret. I mean, I think everybody regrets the bad choices they make unless they're sociopaths. But I, like, I feel like... It's kind of a redundant notion. I don't think the dark one is relatable to real life. True. But I mean, Emma is saying, well, like what you just said is like, Emma has this darkness in her and pe wants people to accept it. Like maybe she just wants people to accept who she is. And she is somebody that has light and darkness in her because I'm still convinced that she has light in her. She had the greatest potential for darkness, but was 100% good. It's also possible that she's not entirely in control here, that she's not fulfilling her plans. When they were discussing plans uh, at the carnival, Snow, Charming, Arthur, Guinevere, Hook, all of them were there at the carnival and they talk about the dagger and the sword and all of that stuff. An idea came to me that what if what Emma is doing is actually under Arthur's control? Because... What she's doing does seem to be what Arthur would have wanted, not what Emma would want. Yes, kind of like what the Dark One would want, and certainly she has seen the influence of the Dark One. But what if Arthur is somehow in influence over this as well? 
They did have some of that powder left. Yeah. Would that work on the dark one? Mm. It's not mind control powder. It's make it look fixed powder. Yeah. I would think that would make her look the way she already looked in Camelot. But it does kind of seem like Arthur is also interested in snuffing out the light. (laughs) Which was defined, by the way. As? As destroying all light magic. And I can't decide, honestly, if that's the circle of influence, if you will, of our end game that the villain is going for, getting smaller or larger. Like, snuffing out the light was the big, mysterious, all-encompassing threat that they always have, like I mentioned in previous weeks. Now they've narrowed it down a little bit, which thank you for doing that before the final episode where we finally see what that looks like. But how big of a threat is destroying all light magic? Does that leave some kind of a vacuum where dark magic takes over and blah, blah, blah? But most of the world, like our world at least, doesn't have magic at all. So does it matter? I mean, I guess if you look at the other realms, it matters. But wouldn't they just all become lands without magic? I guess there'd still be dark magic. But how much of that is there? How many people practice it? Would all light magic turn to dark magic for everyone like it has for Emma at least supposedly. Well, when you look back at what Rumple said, or dark one looking Rumple, mm-hmm. uh, or head Rumple, Rumple looking dark one, mm. he said stuff about friendships and love and the force that threatens to undo all of their deeds. So snuffing out the light means more than merely the light magic. I think when they were talking about it at the carnival, they thought it was only light magic. They might not realize the entire scope of it. Maybe. Hopefully they're not going to say light magic is required for all those things because those things existed in our world when it was still the land without magic. That's true. They've also said that magic cannot be destroyed. It can only change form. So Hmm. I would think that if they snuff out all the light magic, it then becomes dark magic. Hmm, That's an interesting thought. You'd finally get your dark fairy, guys. (laughs) She is dark, okay? (laughs) So Merida brings the chipped teacup to (laughs) gold and gives him something to fight for. It was neat seeing him start to be courageous, maybe thinking... You have Bell, but then again, he is doing all of this fighting over simply a chipped cup. But it's a symbol, mm-hmm. a very important symbol of his love for Bell. It is, uh, which just for me underlined the fact that he is just him. Like he's not pre Dark One Rumple Stiltskin, he's not Mr. Gold, he's Rumple Stiltskin without magic. Like, this whole blank slate heart thing doesn't work for me because he's still him with all his flaws, all his motivations, all his love, all his hate. He's still just him with his same heart. I don't understand this whole concept. It's not like he should be different in some way. He should feel like a blank slate, but he doesn't. So I don't understand how his becoming a hero somehow makes him the purest hero. That's that's why I kind of think that it's not really him who Mm, is going to be the one. Yeah. I like what Wicked Regal pointed out in our forums, saying, A true hero isn't measured by the size of his strength, but by the size of his heart. That's a big Disney rule. (laughs) 
Well, then they should get the Grinch after the whole Christmas thing. Because he get, <laughs> has a really big heart. Maybe they will bring in the Grinch at some point. That's a different studio. I think maybe I think, season but. seven. <laughs> when Regina hacked the Dreamcatcher, what horrible timing for Henry to enter. And I did wonder, it was difficult to read Henry's expression on his face when he came in and started seeing what was happening. I wondered, did Violet dump him again here? He seemed very blank slate-like, very shocked, kind of. But then more so after he discovered what all was in that dream catcher. Yeah, I, I, Emma's regret in the moment was so plain. All I can think of is that he was just too far away from the little tiny dream catcher screen to see... <laughs> the look on her face when she did it. She was clearly really brokenhearted about it. He should have come into the room and been like, play that again. And then... <laughs> Wait, pause it. I need to get closer. <laughs> right, which is totally possible because Regina was swiping through the memories in the Dreamcatcher like it was a smartphone, which makes me think it's a smart Dreamcatcher. So she could have rewound it. She probably could have just texted it to him. <laughs> that's how Violet's getting text messages on a dream catcher. You notice we've never seen her phone. I doubt she has any pockets. We got some feedback in the forums about this. The watcher said, I see it, what Emma did, as justified. Now, before everyone throws puppies at me, Emma has a job mm -hmm. to do. She has to free Merlin to free herself and her family. If not, she will be consumed by darkness. She can spare Henry's feelings this one time to get the tear and then explain it all later after giving Violet her heart back and letting that relationship run wherever it does. Matthew Paul said, Yes, it was cruel for Emma to do so, but I just couldn't help but enjoy how it was written and performed. Emma wants to do things for the greater good, but she's fallen into Dark One temptations in order to do so. The Dark One has always been a master manipulator, and this was no exception. Both Rumpel and Emma have justified their terrible actions as the Dark One. Dark magic on this show has always been compared to drug use. The more you experiment with dark magic, the more of an addict you become. Emma's slipping because the more she's tempted to use dark magic, the more necessary she thinks it is. She's choosing what is easy instead of what is right. Great thoughts, and thank you for that feedback. Well... Yes, I agree. They've created a bit of an impossible situation once again because as far as they know, to end her being the Dark One, they need Merlin. And that's what they knew as the way to get Merlin out. I feel like if if they wanted to, if it had worked, if this had been the end of the story arc and getting Merlin out had been the answer and she was no longer the Dark One, then she could have apologize to Henry and he would have understood and he and Violet would have lived happily ever through junior high and everything would have been okay. <laughs> Do you guys think it's possible that she had explained this in the past to Henry? Maybe. If there was time, yeah. And that now it's just kind of coming up again because everybody forgot their memory and it's kind of framing her in this light that is not necessarily true to what actually mm -hmm. happened in Camelot. Even in the next time, next week, or whenever we get to see them talk about it, if they talk about it, we could easily see a conversation where Henry says, how could you? And she says what she said to Regina. Or And 
even adds, I gave it back. Violet's fine. I like, You're fine. I like how Jacqueline put it, saying, the one aspect this act from Emma does show is a recurring theme in the show that has been popping up since the very beginning. Desperate souls do desperate things. Mm. So unknowing this kind of stuff had happened, apparently not knowing that her house had been broken into, Emma <laughs> goes to visit Henry, trying to visit Henry, and we get this little discussion between Emma and Regina. And the the word manipulation is brought up. But the, the thing that really stood out to me the most, tiny little thing, is it seemed Emma slipped when she mentioned that they did free Merlin. <laughs> yeah, and Regina repeated it back and, she, and Emma kind of looked at her like, if I frown at her long enough, she's going to forget what I just said. And she just moves on <laughs> and says, we're wasting time here. <laughs> like, uh, no, that's not a question I want to answer. Jessica Olson sent this feedback saying, in the first episode, Emma tells everyone that they are going to be punished for what they did to her. Was that just her trying to throw them off? So far, I don't think we have seen them do anything in Camelot that would make her want to punish them. I also don't think she's actually done anything in Storybrooke to punish them yet. I'm not counting Sneezy because Regina fixed him pretty quickly. (laughs) So I'm curious to see what the actual punishment will be. She said that they need a savior for what's coming. My side note here, my person, Daniel's side note. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that was really in reference to the Fury Back to Jessica's feedback. And I really think she is still playing on words for whatever reason. She never said that she was the one that was going to do the punishing. It was all implied. It doesn't really seem like anyone's really afraid of her, even if they don't trust her like she keeps asking them to. Remember, she also asked Regina again here in this scene. Trust me. I need you to trust me. We haven't really seen any scenes with Emma and her parents yet in present day other than when they first came back. So I am interested to see what happens when they finally do have a chat. And Alina Harris suggested some out-of-the-box thinking. What if Emma isn't the Dark One and she's only pretending to be with Merlin's help because Hook is really the Dark One? She could be training Rumple to fight Hook because he is the only one who knew Hook the longest. The only reason I thought of this theory is because of what Merida said. All a man needs is a sword and one good hand. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. Emma's kind of the one with, you know, the magic and, uh, and the head torments and things. The hair and the skin and the... It's an interesting idea for a story. I have my doubts, though. I do feel like Emma has to be talking cryptically and in circles because otherwise there'd be no show. If it was just like, hey, here's the the premiere episode of the season. Here's everything that's going to happen. That's boring for us. So, I mean, she has to be that way to move along the storyline and to keep everybody kind of at bay mm-hmm. so that they can actually tell the stories that they need to tell. Things have really reversed in the relationship between Regina and Emma. (laughs) I loved the, it was kind of a throwback to season one, which we talked about earlier, but when Regina started calling her Miss Swan again, which is kind of, she used to say it disdainfully when Emma was there trying to get close to Henry, but she did correct herself to Emma Mm -hmm. when she said there's always a choice. 
You know, what's interesting that just occurred to me about the way the scene was shot, we've seen a lot of conversations with Emma on the outside of the door and Regina on the inside at Regina's house. And, but this time, Regina is the one, as she put it, on the moral high ground. But something felt different about this besides just the role reversal. And I realize now I could be wrong, but I, my memory, if it serves correctly, is telling me that we're usually primarily as a camera angle on the outside of the door, sort of like we're standing with Emma. And now this was shot largely from inside, sort of from Regina's perspective, looking out at Emma. Nice. I don't know if there's anything to that, but it feels from a cinematography standpoint like we were a little bit on that side of the role reversal, standing with Regina more so. We've got a couple kind of crazy theories here that I wanted to share from uh, some of our listeners. Saros said, there were so many mentions of Neil in this episode. I think we're going to see him again this season. Emma has both Dark One magic and Savior magic, so perhaps she's strong enough to break the laws of magic and resurrect him. Or, as we saw in the second episode of season five, there's an underworld, because that's where the Fury was going to take Robin, So maybe Killian will have the strength to destroy Emma along with the darkness. Then she'll go to the underworld where she'll meet Neil. I don't know about that. Maybe we'll just get to see a flashback. I would be okay with that. I don't want to see him again because that will break the laws of magic. And I don't like when that happens. Now, our other listener, Rain, pointed something out. And this this is an awesome connection here. Okay, Rain said, if we're going to look up the meaning of the name Arthur... We will find out that it means bear or bear-like. In the film Brave, the main antagonist is Mordu, a royalty turned into a bear. What if Arthur is Mordu, and what if he's the one who took Merida's brothers? I think Arthur is the one who took Merida's brothers, but I love this connection here that (laughs) possibly he is Mordu. It's the beard, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) I like that theory, but it just the way Merida spoke about it in the in the premiere was very much like of her culture and her background. Uh, she talked about clans and she didn't talk about kings and kingdoms and well, maybe she talked about kingdoms, but she did definitely talk about that the clans took her brothers. So it wouldn't really be consistent, although she is pretty close to Camelot if they found her where they did. So I know I like the theory, but. I wish that if that theory is true, that they had changed the language in the in the first episode of the season. Because it barely makes sense. Oh, 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 but a oh. bunch. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, folks. Well, we've <laughs> perhaps barely made sense of this episode, but this does conclude our discussion of Dreamcatcher. And if you want to continue the conversation, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash forums and sign up for our forums where you can continue the conversation about this episode or any other episode. But what would really help us out is if you would go to oncepodcast.com slash 214 and share this episode. There are buttons to share it on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, StumbleUpon, Google+, all kinds of things like that. So please go there to the show notes and share this episode. Get other people listening to the podcast as well. Tweet it, Facebook it, like it, all of that cool stuff. What also encourages us is when you leave a review in iTunes. And Lady K BBQ recently did that in iTunes and said, 
the one and only you will need. If you are a diehard Once Upon a Time fan, this is the podcast for you. It's the perfect extension of the show. The whole crew is great. I have been a dedicated listener since episode eight. Love, love, love this podcast. Thank you very much, Lady K. We really appreciate that. If you'd like to write a review for the podcast or subscribe so that you get every episode automatically, then please go to oncepodcast.com and click on the appropriate button to subscribe in your app or platform of choice like Android or iTunes or Stitcher or anything else like that. That's all at oncepodcast.com. That's also where you can find our feedback information if you want to send us theories about upcoming episodes of Once Upon a Time. Just make sure that in the subject line, if you email us, put in the title of that episode, and that helps in the sorting of that feedback. Please connect with us on Twitter at Once Podcast, and I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at The Ramen Noodle. I'm Jeremy Laughlin on Twitter at Fleegon, that's P-H-L-E-G-O-N. I'm Aaron, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. This podcast would not be possible without our great team of people supporting the podcast, keeping it running, and doing all of these awesome tasks for us that really help the podcast keep going. So special thanks to these volunteers, Corbin for sorting our feedback, Jack for writing our show notes, John Buchanan for editing our episodes, Hunter Hathaway and Jacqueline providing spoilers. You'll hear from them in just a moment. Jacqueline and Matthew Paul moderating the forums and Keb managing our timeline. Check that out over at oncepodcast.com slash timeline. And of course, thanks to my fellow co-hosts for doing this podcast with me. And until next time, when the kingdom is attacked by ogres, will you protect my daughter with a pen? (laughs) And thanks for listening. One's podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our heroes for supporting this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to be one of them and support on a regular ongoing basis or shop through our amazon.com affiliate links, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero and thank you for your support. Hi, Oncers. I'm Hunter Hathaway. And I'm Jacqueline. And it's spoiler time for Once Podcast, episode 506, The Bear and the Bow. In a Camelot flashback, a chance encounter with Merlin, David, Hook, and Belle gives Merida new hope in her quest to save her brothers from the usurping clans of Dumbroth. Unwilling to leave anything up to fate, Merida brings Belle along on a dangerous journey that cultivates with an inevitable lesson in bravery. In Storybrooke, Regina, Mary Margaret, and David discover the spell that would allow one of Merlin's choice to communicate with him, but when Arthur fails to reach the missing sorcerer, the heroes grow suspicious. Meanwhile, Emma commands Merida to kill Belle in hopes of forcing Mr. Gold's heroic transformation. With Merida unable to disobey Emma's orders, Gold must find the courage to fight for Belle's life or risk losing her forever. Big episode. Yes, and it's written by Andrew Chambliss and Say Chun, and this one is directed by Ralph Hemlicker. Okay, so we got quite a lot of guest stars. Um, The whole Camelot clan is there, so we won't be reading those names again. 
but we get to see some of our favorite characters from Brave. So we've got Paul Teffler as Lord McIntosh, and you'll remember him as the one with the blue markings and the really big nose and the hair. We got Marco D'Angelo as Lord McGuffin, and he is the really big guy that you can't understand any word he says. And Josh Halloran as Lord Dingwall, and he is we, the blonde-haired dorky guy. Yes, and... Speaking of those guys, we did get a bunch of photos, and they are featured in a lot of those photos. And the um, the casting, the makeup, and the costume are all really on point for these guys. Yes. They, they look a lot like their counterparts from the Disney movie. They look so close, except for um, I don't think Lord McIntosh has a big enough nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really small nose, and... In the movie, that's what he's known for is he's got the big, long hair and the really big nose. So, I mean, I don't think it's real. They would have probably had to put prosthetics on anyone if they were to do that. Probably. But we also see the three brothers tied yes. to the stakes. So but we're they're not the guest triplets. stars. They're not. I'm, I'm guessing that they aren't going to be speaking or doing a whole lot. Yeah. But they are tied to stakes in the ground, so they're being held hostage. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of photos of Emma, and she's in the cave looking at Excalibur, and it looks like gold is with her at one point. There's a really great f- up-close photo of Jennifer Morrison, and you get a bit more of a sense of her costume. Um, it's really – she looks really good in that photo. Yeah. And then there are a lot of photos with Merida and Belle, and they are in the witch's house from Brave – Okay. And they are I was st- having a hard time figuring out where they were. Yeah, it looks like the witch's house to me. And they're standing in front of a cauldron, and it looks like Belle and Merida have some sort of spell book that they are looking at and trying to figure out what to do. Is it me, or does it look like Belle wearing a curtain? I don't like this this cloak, yeah. Normally, her cloaks are really cute, and I want them, but this one kind of looks like... I see that you wrote here in our notes a curtain... Yeah, it looks like it was taken off the window as a window treatment. It, it does. And it's covering up her really pretty Camelot dress because she's wearing that green Camelot dress underneath. Yeah. So and it's they've got up. A, a, the spell book. Now, I saw these photos before I wrote the synopsis because yesterday they came out with the synopsis really, really late. It looks like this is supposed to take place. I'm so confused as to when this takes place. It takes place in the six weeks that they were in Camelot. Because it says in the synopsis in Storybrooke, Regina, Mary, Margaret, and David discover the spell that will allow them yes. to, to communicate. There are a few photos of Hook, Charming, and Regina standing around holding that mushroom. Okay. So I'm guessing that the mushroom back from Siege Perilous is going to come back into this. Right. It was just confusing to me when I read the synopsis after looking at the pictures because to me they didn't line up very well. Yeah. Now it looks like Merida and Belle are going on an adventure in that six-week interval um, when everyone was in Camelot. Okay, makes a little bit more sense now. But we did get a promo. Yes. No Canadian promo. Come on, Canada. (laughs) (sighs) And as has been the history this entire season, the promo is really just the synopsis. Yep. Um, Emma wants Merida to go put an arrow through Belle's heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like Mr. Gold has to try and save Belle in order to save her from Merida's arrows. Yeah. But we did get a glimpse of a really big bear. Yes. And, and I don't 
Is it Merida turning into a bear? Does Merida conjure up a bear? Well, in the story of Brave, it's her mother that turns into a bear. And then there is another big, huge bear in the story as well. More do. Yeah, he's dead. Right. So that's why I'm wondering if somehow Merida can transform into a bear. That'd be kind of cool. But it's a big bear. It's It's a a very big bear. bear. Yes. So. And then you said we got a sneak peek. It came out late last night. We did get a sneak peek. So the sneak peek opens with Hook, Charming, Merlin, and Belle breaking into the Camelot dungeons. And there's a big fight scene. Um, We see how Merlin really does know the future. He There's a couple really cute instances where he stops everybody so that they avoid other guards and stuff like that. Merlin is also adorable. So it's, I just I really like this guy. They are after Lancelot, and they come upon his jail cell, and Merlin doesn't know how to open it because it's magic he's never seen before. But Belle is there with a handy-dandy book that somehow tells him the answer. Books so they, tell you everything. So they free Lancelot, and then <laughs> they also free Merida, and Merlin promises Merida that they will find a way to free her brothers, and that's where it ends. Very cool. It looks exciting. Yes. Okay, let's move on. So there's a lot of behind-the-scene photos that have been coming out lately, and it looks like they're – I think they're filming around episode 11. They are filming episode 11 right now, which is the winter finale. Yes. So it's not – Anything too big right now? If it was, Hunter and I would allow you guys to turn off our spoilers in case you didn't really want to know something. But there are some photos from stuff they've shot this last week and then last night because they were on set again. Okay. Keep in mind that they film out of order, but we're going to talk about the photos in the days that they came out. So uh, from last week, we had Emma back to, quote, normal in her red jacket and her jeans, looking very Emma Swan. Right. But So it could be a flashback. It really could be. It could, but at the same time, she's working with Rumple, cutting himself with a dagger. So I think that they're doing some kind of blood ritual. I really think this is present day. I think her dark swan curse has either been broken or has been removed from her body. All I know is it looks really cold out there in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and Emma is also wearing some sort of ring around her neck. It looks like some kind of circle ring. Then she's got it on a chain. It's around her neck. But I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Because then they filmed the next day, I think it was. And it shows Emma and Regina arriving to set. And Emma's dark again. Right. So they do shoot out of order. Nothing gets shot in order because if they'll shoot everything that takes place in the forest on one day or in certain days, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what I think happens is that we're going to see Emma's Dark Swan curse broken early on in episode 511. And then the remainder of that episode will be some sort of magic blood ritual type thing, <laughs> which <laughs> leads us to where they were filming last night, because once again, Emma's back in her Dark Swan outfit. But instead of going against everybody she's actually leading everybody down main street and that includes snowing outlaw queen the dwarves hook eventually arrived on set so it looks like she's leading them into battle that's kind of fun though mm-hmm. and, and they're all working with the dark one and then the other thing that was pretty interesting was that there were men in dark cloaks who were running around set and it was very creepy 
And my current theory is that it's pain and panic from Hercules. Oh, that'd be so cool. Mm -hmm. And we did get to see a Twitter photo from Adam Crossadel. I I hope I pronounce his name right. (laughs) He, as we mentioned last week, is playing Huck's father. And he's dressed up as the dad. And he's got his leather pants and his poofy pirate shirt on. He kind of looks like somebody who's um, cosplaying as Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. (laughs) I was going to say he reminds me as if he should be on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And according to IMDb, I don't know how accurate this is. It could possibly change. But according to IMDb, he is playing Brennan Jones. Okay. Which is an so, Irish name, so it would it would kind of keep with Killian and Liam. Right. But okay. we'll find out when he appears in episode 510. Yep. We have quite a bit of casting. Yes. And the first one is that the show is casting a mysterious, dangerous, and vindictive godlike figure known obscurely as the Distinguished Gentleman, or the DG. Um, and he'll be appearing in the finale of this winter finale, so episode 511. He's, it's pretty, you know, vague who he is, but I think everybody out there can make a pretty educated guess. There's a long history in television media of the devil or Hades or however you want to refer to him being shown as a dapper gentleman. If you guys watch Supernatural, Sam Winchester in season five, If you've seen the movie Devil's Advocate, you have Al Pacino as John Milton who walks around wearing very expensive suits. If you've seen the television show Reaper, Lucifer is all dressed up. Or a very, very old show, Dallas, Joel Gray had – an old show. Yes. (laughs) Joel Gray had to portray the devil and he was wearing this bright red suit the entire time. So – you know, everybody's been hint- looking at all the Greek mythology that's been going on this half of the season, and I think it's pretty likely that we are getting Hades. That'd be cool. Like I said, he just needs to have the blue flame in hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you said we got some other cast news late last night that I've missed. Yes. So Caroline Morhan and Glenn Coe have been cast as Merida's parents, and they will be appearing in that two-hour episode that's airing 508 and 509 probably in 509 instead of 508 because 509 is the bear king and that's probably going to be another merida episode so i assume they're going to be in that one it'll probably be a flashback because as merida has pointed out her father has passed away yep so that'd be that's kind of cool i mean they're kind of fun characters in the movie at least yeah and I'm not sure in what capacity we'll see them because the show typically doesn't do a flashback to actually show you the movie. Right. So I don't know if it's going to be maybe, maybe just like right his after death. the movie. Yeah, I was thinking we were going to see uh, King Fergus's death. Okay. Okay, and then we've got some really exciting news. Yes. Barbara Hershey is returning for the 100th episode. You guys all may remember her as Cora or Regina's mother. The article I read says it's very unclear as to if it's going to be a flashback or if Once Upon a Time is going to do something surprising and she'll be alive. But it will be airing in March. Well, I don't think she's going to be alive and I don't think it's going to be a flashback. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to what we were just talking about, about Hades probably coming, season 5B really does seem to be set up as a journey to the underworld. And 
you know, as with any other classic catabasis down into the underworld, you're going to see people who have died. And I think most likely we're going to be seeing her down in the underworld. She's going to interact with Regina and Zelina. It'd be a first time that Zelina and Cora have interacted, which would be a pretty big deal. Um, I'm also going to put this out there. I am prepared for us to be getting a lot more of these surprise returns. Yeah, I know. It's from thinking, villains. Like, all the well, it doesn't even have to be villains. I mean, Neil. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what about just, Graham? I mean, uh, come on, Jamie's too big people. now. I don't think they they're going to get Jamie Dornan back. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if their the once upon a time conception of the underworld is very much a place where villains go. In Greek yeah. mythology, the underworld is far more complicated, and there are a lot of different sections. You know, like the Isle right. of the Blessed, and it's not just a place right. for the damned and the doomed. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't be surprised if once upon a time sort of takes a more, let's say, Christian approach, and that it's really hell. I'm thinking possibly we know Cora, either Pan or Malcolm, depending on actor availability. I think Robbie Kay is finished with Heroes Reborn, so he could possibly come back. I wouldn't be surprised if they had Josh Dallas become Prince James to interact with David, because those two have never interacted together. And maybe also King George, if they can get Alan Dale back. That'd be really cool. And also uh, Victoria Smurfett, who played Cruella, because, you know, obviously there's a history there with Emma. That would be so cool. We can't. I can't wait till next half of the season. Yeah, so we'll have to keep an eye out and see if anybody else is announced as coming back. Yep. But that's all we have for you this week. I'm Hunter. You can follow me on Twitter at Bit of Pixie Dust. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at Punk underscore Bunny underscore 87. Until next time, Oncers. Oh.